in short form, black people don't earn enough to support black businesses enough to increase those businesses to the size where they would be able to, through hiring and redistributing the even the wealth that they would create if they wanted to, back to the community in ways that would sustain or actually close gaps in income and wealth. This is why we have the same amount of black-owned banks today that we had in 1969. And why economically black people collectively are relatively the same condition, certainly in terms of the percentage of the national wealth that was held at the end of enslavement. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to Jared Ball, author of the new book, The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. And yes, this has a lot to do with sports. Uh, Dr. Jared Ball is a father and husband. After that, he's a professor of communication studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, and is a founder curator of imixwhatilike.org, which is a multimedia hub of emancipatory journalism and revolutionary beat reporting. We're going to talk to this remarkable person. Also, Uh, I've got uh, choice words this week about Michael Jordan's Last Dance, the documentary that everybody's talking about over on ESPN. Uh, As of this recording, we've seen two out of ten episodes, and I already have a strong impression of what I like and what I definitely do not like about this doc. Um, I've also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards, but first, let's go to the author of The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. Dr. Jared Ball. So the the book is such an accomplishment. Um, I enjoyed it very much. I learned a ton from reading it. Uh, Before we get into debunking, and so much of the book is about debunking the myth and propaganda of black buying power, I was wondering if you could explain to the audience what is that myth of black buying power? Why is it so pernicious? And from where does it emerge? So, uh, no, absolutely. And, uh, uh, first of all, you know, on tape or not, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to come on and discuss this for anybody involved in any form of black politics or anywhere in, on any part of the political spectrum in the black political sphere, uh, particularly whether in activism or elsewhere, everyone has heard one or another version of the myth, which is says initially, uh, black people have and spend 1.3 or more trillion dollars annually. And were this money redirected, uh, spent more responsibly, uh, engaged with a greater degree of quote unquote financial literacy, then black people could collectively improve their economic condition, could overturn ec- income and wealth inequality, could more or less satisfy all of the concerns and struggles that impact negatively the community. For me in particular, you know, just being around for years, I mean, you know, almost 20 years in activism and hearing versions of this, uh, including in some of the most left and radical spaces, uh, it just never seemed to jive or comport with the data and the lived experience that that we were all uh, confronting. So I just wanted to start to look at this. And for more than 10 years now, I've been trying to uh, identify the origins and and explain uh, to myself and others how it's evolved. But essentially, 
it becomes a myth in the 1950s uh, in the hands of primarily the black commercial press with uh, John H. Johnson leading the way with Ebony and Jet magazine and his 1954 classic marketing video called Selling the Negro, which was meant to uh, attract white corporate advertising dollars to black commercial media, primarily by convincing this white commercial world that black people were now able to enter a post-World War II economic era, a boom from the, the labor that they had um, been able to enjoy and an increase in income, and now had all this money to spend. And if these white advertising dollars were poured into black commercial media, they could deliver upon those uh, co corporations a black commercial class that, uh, or shopping uh, middle class, a consumer class that could, uh, you know, enrich the ad purchasers. The origins themselves, however, of the concept of cost of living and buying power originate in the late 19th century as the government and elite corporations look to work together to figure out how to prevent social unrest as uh, an increase in inequality emerged in, in the post-Reconstruction, post-Civil War uh, era. Uh, and labor was was wondering, hey, how come we're not being able to afford all this products we're helping to increasingly produce? So the initial point of the studies were to simply alert everyone to what the actual economic condition of, of working people was to assure that business was paying people enough to buy the products that were being produced, primarily to make sure that people didn't rebel and that labor didn't ask too many questions. Once in the hands later on in that black commercial media class, it became something else and something's directed primarily and in a very unique way to black America. And that's something I've been trying to address. Now you write that this myth projects, and this is your words, projects a black material reality which has never existed. And I think that's a very important point. Like you're not just writing that it's a myth that uh, black pine buying power is an avenue to liberation, you're also writing that it doesn't even exist. Like the black buying power that's been projected by the by the media class and by the economists and by uh, all various stripes of, of nationalists, that that doesn't even exist, that black buying power. Can you speak about that? Well, again, so again, the concept emerges out of a need to ease the tensions between capital and labor. Uh, mm -hmm. And when the myth becomes taken over by this black commercial press, it is redirected to the black community across the spectrum, again, across the political spectrum in such a way uh, that is meant to convince people of, a, of, a, of an opportunity that doesn't ever actually exist. So on the one hand, white corporations are saying, and the white political uh, uh, power structure, so to speak, is saying, yeah, we want to project, uh, and this is part of the concern, certainly after the Second World War, we want to project a United States that is open and democratic. And by democratic, we really mean democratic and capitalist and offering potential to everyone, including the formerly enslaved and formerly uh, Jim Crow, or currently Jim Crow, even in the 1950s. And then to say to black communities, you don't need to engage in civil and political struggle. You don't need to engage in in questions of radical redistribution of wealth. All you really and you certainly don't need to. And this is also a point of the book is you certainly don't need to engage yourselves in any sort of conscious political electoral political struggle either. You don't need to engage politics uh, in any meaningful way. You don't have to worry about that. Your concerns are with business and with money. 
in league with a, a tradition of trying to promote black entrepreneurialism and black capitalism as a method of black political uh, and economic advance to dissuade people from radical political struggle and to dissuade people from raising questions about the nature of the economy and, and various relationships to it that, that, that groups in the country held or hold. Uh, this, it, it is still promoted to this day that, that if we just focus on our business and focus on our, on our finance, we can more or less uh, ignore the more complicated and even nefarious political world and just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps in this wonderful utopian in terms of potential economic uh, environment. Uh, and that's, and when taken over by that wing of the black commercial media and press class, uh, it took on and takes on a, a level of perniciousness that is directed at black communities, unlike anyone else. So buying power is, is as a concept, applied to any manner, all manner of the demographic uh, groups in society. I mean, they, they applied racially, it's applied to municipalities, it's applied to states, but only as a concept to measure the ability of any group to spend what is available for them to spend on goods that are available for them to buy. It is not a measurement of income, it is not a measurement of wealth, it is not a measurement of any sort of pool of money that sits in escrow that, that could be collectively maneuvered more responsibly if, if, if managed more, more properly. It is a projection, an estimate based on, uh, as I go through in the book, really questionable at best uh, methodology that uh, is, again, only meant to assess the money available, the potential available in any group to spend on available product. For instance, and this is one example I like to just give as a personal one. When our fam when our house had a, a our pipes broke, and we had to get them fixed, the cost of the repair was too much for us to to bear. So we were able to, but we were able to get a loan through a bank for the specific purchase of that pipe repair. That expenditure is counted as, in this case, black buying power. But in reality, all we're doing is spending as a sieve, really, the money made available to us on a one specific good or service made available to us that we don't own and don't control and don't benefit from economically, and certainly as a group, don't benefit from economically. And this is sort of how the myth is, is generated. So the numbers are mostly just headlined and estimates and projections, and then people just sort of regurgitate it. And as I talk about in the book, a sort of a perfectly ripe media environment help the myth survive and uh, thrive. Mm. Now, you make the point that just about every wing of black politics uh, in the post-World War II era has incorporated some of this as part of their rhetoric, uh, from Malcolm X to uh, the, the right-wing nationalists that you, that you talk about who put themselves consciously in opposition to uh, some of the basic tenets of the black freedom struggle. Um, does it mean something different, black buying power, in the hands of left black nationalists as opposed to right black nationalists? Does it have value in, in the rhetoric and practice of left nationalists? Or do you think it's something that just needs to be jettisoned altogether? This is a very good question, an important question, uh, and it's something that is more complicated and in some cases controversial because I understand what it sounds like when little old Jared Ball walks into a room and says, you know, every major luminary we can think of has misread or misinterpreted this myth from and across, again, as you mentioned, the political spectrum. So in one one uh, area of agreement between Du Bois and Garvey was on the, the concept of buying power. 
and certainly in the hands of different uh, activists and organizations, it meant different things. And this is sort of part of the problem here. When the numbers started to emerge in the late 19th century, uh, the cost of, of living surveys and, 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 and buying power projections, it produced in the minds of, of many activists and, and members of the community this idea that we have this pool of money that is just being misspent. So you had a black business class pop up. Uh, Booker T. Washington's organizations and uh, uh, and colleagues and like-minded ideological adherents all popped up saying, well, we just need to redirect that buying power to black businesses, and that's the way that black communities can uplift and develop a, 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 a foothold in this country. Uh, du Bois took on a more redistributive idea, saying we could develop cooperatives that would redistribute this wealth throughout the community. Garvey certainly had a more pan-Africanist, internationalist view of it. We can take this money and use this to develop black, black businesses uh, that would expand in a pan-African way and, and give room for black communities to breathe and free themselves from colonial ties, et cetera, and so forth. Certainly in the post-World War II era, the black commercial press took on and really highlighted and redeveloped and rebranded the myth and was buttressed by a white commercial cl press class in, that I talk about in the book would itself repeat and just sort of recycle uh, its own statements uh, as they were developed and produced by the government and black commercial press, picked up by the white commercial press, regurgitated back through black readers and pundits into the black community and into the black press again, uh, many people picked up on it. So Malcolm X certainly picked up on it and had in during his days in the Nation of Islam, uh, and it's something that Minister Louis Farrakhan uh, uh, continues through to this day in his own variations, basically saying, if we redirect our money, we can buy land and we can uh, develop our businesses. And, and again, we can sort of isolate ourselves uh, economically and uh, in a positive way, enhance and, and, and develop, take advantage of, of opportunities in, in ways that we're not currently doing. Uh, and certainly CORE and the NAACP uh, and, and more radical leftist groups uh, that I've even encountered and, and been involved in, the Malcolm X grassroots movements and, 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 uh, and elements within it in certain aspects, would bring this up again to say, well, we have this money, we just need to better redistribute it. Um, so from, you know, very conservative, more business-minded aspects to, to, uh, to more left Pan-African redistributive socialist, even, uh, uh, formations, this, this, the myth has, has been promoted and regurgitated to such a degree that while it does, um, permeate throughout the community, it also is it, part of what allows it to permeate it, are the different variations and the different, uh, uh, forms that it takes throughout uh, the political spectrum in the community. And this is one of the, to me, more, again, pernicious and dangerous and nefarious uh, aspects of the myth in that it's its ability to be so easily reformed or rebranded by various elements within the community. But at the same time, there is a, almost a unilateral and uniformed historical um, refusal and ability, unwillingness or just not thinking of, of investigating the claims. Uh, where do the numbers originate? How do they comport with actual reality? Uh, how, do they report with, how do they comport with the amounts of data and studies being reported and developed that actually explain the black economic condition that don't get the same kind of coverage in the black commercial press and don't get the same kind of applause lines and headline grabbing uh, attention that pundits certain and, and certain activist leaders uh, certainly would want to get.
you know, um, I could see people uh, wanting to understand more clearly, like, okay, so there is a myth of black buying power. How is how does it prevent protest though? How does it prevent radical change? How does it prevent? Uh, wh- why can't it be uh, instead of either or? Why can't it be an and where local businesses are supported, black businesses are supported, uh, and yet at the same time there's a, a radical change aspect as well. But you think there's actual contradiction? Well, there is contradiction in that, uh, you know, on the one hand, look, I'm not I, I certainly support all manner of, of black business uh, whenever I can. I'm not saying that black business shouldn't be supported. I'm not saying that all these various forms that we see from Black Lives Matter and Killer Mike and T.I. and uh, uh, other celebrities promoting buy black, bank black. Uh, I, I don't I don't d- discourage any of those efforts. My only uh, interest here is to suggest that they are not going to be successful or should not be seen as uh, leading to levels of success that many uh, would hope that they would, and that they shouldn't be seen as discouraging more radical efforts in political organization uh, and movements. Uh, and essentially, I'm just so- trying to show and demonstrate uh, not only in terms of, of how the myth originates and is promoted and, and regurgitated and resuscitated over all these years, but to also point out that a lot of the data in the study, I think, is more honest, accurate and substantive in terms of the economic reality is being ignored. And attempts to address that are also being ignored in favor of what has has been an overtly discussed uh, effort by the political and economic elite in this country to discourage black people away from radical politics and even uh, meaningful engagement with mainstream electoral politics by by encouraging a black capitalist, black entrepreneurial endeavor or trajectory that uh, cannot lead to the kinds of collective uplift that many hope. In short form, black people don't earn enough to support black businesses enough to increase those businesses to the size where they would be able to, through hiring and redistributing the even the wealth that they would create if they wanted to, back to the community in ways that would sustain or actually close gaps in income and wealth. This is why we have the same amount of black-owned banks today that we had in 1969, and why economically black people collectively are, are in relatively the same condition, certainly in terms of the percentage of the national wealth that was held at the end of enslavement. Uh, and when we look at in- income rates and wealth rates, the only so-called improvement we can look at is relative to enslavement or relative to Jim Crow and not really to uh, what should be considered a standard for anybody or any community's uh, economic condition. So it does in many ways. I, I, on the one hand, it's been overtly, and I, and I discuss this in the book to some extent, uh, uh, designed, th- that is the black capitalist uh, broader uh, mythology has been designed or the black entrepreneurial push has been designed to discourage radical black political efforts uh, to, to, and to uh, encourage a belief in the potential in this country's economic system to be open enough to, to just be supported along the m- more mainstream lines and then the adherent myths of Horatio Alger and and uh, hard work pays off will kick in. Uh, but that's simply just not the reality. And I think as we're experiencing now with the coronavirus uh, um, COVID-19 crisis, we're actually experiencing writ large what I've been describing here in this book as a microcosm for the black community. That is when the consumer role 
uh, in the economy is devalued or misunderstood, the 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 the, the uh, entire apparatus is is equally misunderstood. That is to say that we are all participating in the creation of wealth that is just not properly redistributed. And as soon as people can't shop and can't spend money, uh, you know, part of the myth for black buying power is that if black people would just stop buying weed and hair and spending so much on fronts and cars, uh, we would have all this money to save and redirect to help ourselves. But what we're seeing here is that when people don't buy uh, cars and rims and coffee and go to movies and do all the things that were said are, are, are irresponsible, the entire economy collapses. Mm -hmm. uh, the entire relationship, even the elite, as I even talk about in the book, prior to this crisis, were already concerned about the drop-off in black so-called buying power because it was going to hurt the collective gross domestic product of the country. So what I'm encouraging in the book even before this crisis, and I think it's perfect to, to, to bring up again now, is that we look again at how, how this economy works, what is all of our relationships to it, and more importantly, instead of challenging or chasing after a mythological trillion dollars uh, in buying power, we should all be politically aspiring to better redistribute the $20 trillion that is very real in gross domestic product that we all participate in creating when we do buy our coffees and go to movies and take vacations and do all the so-called frivolous things that we're told we shouldn't do. Because when we do save, so-called save our money or sit on our money, as we're seeing right now, the economy collapses. And this is something about capitalism and 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 uh, uh, the 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 broader uh, roles that all of us play in the economy that many of us misunderstand, in part because myths like buying power are so heavily promoted uh, to serve their more commercial uh, media uh, and business interests. Now. Uh, it's interesting because this is, of course, a show that talks about sports and politics. And I immediately started looking at this issue through the lens of sports from the opening line of your book where you quote Kwame Ture, who people might be more familiar with his uh, birth name, Stokely Carmichael, um, where Kwame Ture said, black visibility is not black power. And I felt like that quote relates strongly to sports about visibility somehow equaling progress. Uh, do, do you see what, what do you see there in terms of like the connection of this idea with the kind of meritocracy, particularly black meritocracy that's that's or racial meritocracy that's promoted by the sports world? Well, you know, Teray was saying that in the 60s when uh, when the the, the so-called modern media environment was really just be, being uh, in its earliest stages of development. And what we see now is a world, a media environment more privatized, consolidated in ownership and penetrative in reach than ever before. And part of that apparatus is heavily includes uh, celebrity of all forms and certainly athletes. Uh, which for, I think, the black community have always played in an out-of-proportion size role in the political uh, world. So we do see uh, celebrity being promoted all the time in many ways tacitly supporting this buying power myth and certainly the black capitalist and entrepreneurial myths that if you work hard and, again, uh, uh, don't look to radically challenge and certainly radically redistribute all the wealth being created. There are there is room for you to to do well. But what we also see is that with all of the black celebrity, all of the black uh, uh, professional athletes and entertainers who individually are doing well, when we look at the collective condition, we can start to trace that 
uh, as Teray was pointing out, that the, an increase in visibility has been met with a decrease in political and economic power. And this is one of the, the complicated realities that I do try to talk about and, and outline or at least somewhat detail in the book, uh, primarily by showing the, the inordinate amount of attention paid to celebrity and mythology in, in commercial media as opposed to the actual reports and data and, and studies that have been coming out routinely that don't get that same kind of coverage uh, to, to, to try to close this gap cognitively between um, what is being presented in uh, the mythological commercial media world and what people are obviously living and experiencing in their daily uh, realities. Now, as we see now, and again, so years ago, and I know you know about this, but I always thought when there was that, I think it was the 1998 NBA lockout, I think that was one of the more, one of the points where I and others were trying to point out that this is a great time to reevaluate the the relationship even uh, professional athletes have to the economy, because it, in, in a microcosm of what's happening now, as soon as they were locked out, as soon as they were prevented from working and and uh, earning uh, uh, their incomes, we started to see many players all very quickly having to sell off properties, sell mm -hmm. off this, and be, because they weren't, uh, uh, and then very quickly the concern went right back to the NBA owners saying, if we a lockout ends up hurting us, our our arenas are closed, our uh, events are shut down. We're not making money. So it, it, it was beginning to show then that there is a relationship between, again, even in that world, the, the, the laborer and the, and capital that exists and, and the relationship that consumers play in all of that, that we're experiencing on a more macro severe level now. And this is what I, so, so part of what happens, and this is part of why I talk about Jay-Z in the book and Killer Mike in the book, uh, and, and even mention in, briefly Jay-Z's attempt to play a political role in the sports world, uh, is that the role that they're being asked to play um, tacitly, implicitly perhaps, is, that, is, is to promote a potential that doesn't exist, to make sure that people don't start to ask the kinds of questions that I and many others would like us to ask about the nature of the economy, wealth creation and wealth redistribution. Uh, so at a time like this, it would be great if more of the discussion, as I'm aware of hearing it, uh, as it relates to the sports world, were was about how are we going to redistribute redistribute the wealth that the sports world creates, as opposed to how are we going to, for instance, uh, quarantine players and seclude players on private islands to get the league back in place so we can get this thing right. generated again. You know, that's the kind of stuff I would like to see us us, us raising questions about because, uh, um, unfortunately, this is not likely to be the last crisis, and we, I think, need to be better prepared collectively as a society for what comes next. Yeah. I mean, what were your thoughts in real time with the whole conflict between Jay-Z and Kaepernick and Jay-Z talking about the need to move on from kneeling and the need to move on from, as he basically was saying, performative protest in return for getting a seat at the table? Look, as I've admitted many times, he Jay-Z has been my biggest contradiction uh, as, a, as a music lover and a hip-hop fan. I mean, I grew up listening to Jay-Z. I thought he was one of the best MCs ever, uh, uh, still do. Uh, but but the reality is he has been, always been playing the same the very same role that he was playing in that in that uh, moment there he has been the promoter of a uh, black entrepreneurialism mythology um, that uh, this I can do it you can do it there is room if you get smarter to do these things without conf conflict with the state without conflict with power. 
and I'm showing you the way to do it. I was drinking, uh, uh, you know, I, you know, I, um, mm-hmm. what do you say? I was drinking uh, Cristal when you thought it was beer. You know, I was rocking platinum when you thought it was gold or silver, you know, uh, uh, and here he is again saying, uh, you know, in his in his OJ song, I could have done better if I had been fi- financially smarter, I would have been richer. And it, if 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 I'm a billionaire, the next best thing is to have another black billionaire and you can do it, too. And then here he is saying to Kaepernick and Kaepernick supporters, you don't need to protest and take a knee and make all this fuss and hurt your pockets. Uh, we can make deals. I can come in and cut a deal with the with the business elite and put an image and a pro- and project a mythology of potential advance uh, um, that that will make me money and a handful of my collective classmates, uh, pun intended, money. Uh, and and as we see, we'll work to the exclusion of Kaepernick and to those who support him. And this has just been his role. And that's it's not to and that is. Uh, Actually, what I would argue is the role of all celebrity, particularly black celebrity in this country, is to, to at some point uh, uh, um, perform that function. And, and, and as I continue to argue, this is why you can never be simultaneously rich, famous, and radically political. You might get one of the three, two of the three, but you can't sustain as all three. Uh, and as we see with the histories of Paul Robeson and Canada Lee and Hazel Scott and, and many others, uh, there's a price to pay uh, as Kaepernick is, is forced to suffer for trying to blend radical politics and questions with uh, uh, a relative amount of fame and celebrity. No, that's real talk right there. Um, you've been so generous with your time. I got to ask you before you go, in, in, in your most, uh, in, in your greatest hopes, who do you want this book to reach? Where do you want the debates that are so ably uh, expressed in this book? Where do you want them to go? Where do you want them to land? I really want them to go into any part of the public sphere where black politics are discussed and ultimately all politics and economics are discussed. Um, I think, again, this myth inhibits black political organization and struggle and ultimately, I think, hurts uh, the, the, the collective p- potential of all groups and the entire country as a whole. Um, I do focus as a microcosm on the myth as it, it relates to black people. But as we see, the the myth that I'm attempting to expose is something that relates to the broader economy and society, and particularly in this moment, again, to the role that consumption and consumerism plays in this economy. It is not something to be dismissed as irresponsible and foolish and childish. It is, it is in this economy something to be respected and appreciated, and I just argue better redistributed, and then none of us will have any of these issues uh, or concerns, certainly at this level, uh, ever again. Mm. And last, I ask this, it's so interesting. I ask this of every guest on the show, but um, I'm, I'm really happy to ask you this. Uh, as you're getting through Corona and whatnot, what music are you listening to these days? Oh man, that's a, oh, well, I've gone back to, I go back, I, every time there's a crisis, I go back to my, 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 I go the, to the same place. And for me, it's always Donny Hathaway live. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the collective live uh, at the Fillmore East and West albums, uh, that 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 you can that were you know sort of uh, uh, made into a, a, a compilation are are my favorite. Is to me the best uh, collection of musical performance, soul, stripped down energy, 
singing. Uh, I mean, in his renditions of classics like What's Going On and The Beatles Yesterday. I mean, to me, so that's where I go all the time. Anytime there's a crisis or anytime, anytime there's a moment of happiness and hope, I go back to the same place. Donny Hathaway Live. <laughs> right on. That's That's real talk right there. Hey, uh, Jarrett, you've been really generous with your time. Um, the book is called The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. I found it to be a, a fantastically illuminating read. I got so much out of it. Thank you so much for writing it, and thanks so much for appearing on the podcast. Uh, thank you both for having me. Thanks to your audience for listening. And I do invite everybody to the May 25th virtual book launch and people can sign up at imixwhatilike.org and get uh, information on the book and more there. Uh, again, Dave, thank you very much for this. I appreciate you, man. Um, and can people join it? Is it a Zoom type of thing? Like how can people be a part of it? The, the, virtual, book la- the virtual book launch is going to be a, a, a sign up, uh, a Patreon event uh, exclusive to those who sign up for it. Uh, those who buy the book can um, uh, submit proof of purchase and get into the event for free. Uh, um, but, uh, uh, it is a, a Patreon paid for exclusive event and it's going to have uh, special guests, music. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff lined up. It's going to be kind of a hot event, uh, for, for, for a two hour virtual, uh, book launch and party by that. I do mean party. So, uh, uh, but again, I mix what I like.org, all the information they can get there, including, uh, links to where they can buy the book. Oh, bet. That's fantastic. Count me in. Uh, Jarrett, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look. Sports is the last oasis of monocultural moments. The Super Bowl, March Madness, the opening pitch to start the new baseball season, the NBA Finals, and the Summer Olympics are a few of the events we still collectively share, even in our sliced and diced entertainment landscape. These events, which timestamp the seasons in our subconscious, have been taken away from us by the coronavirus pandemic but something close to a substitute has emerged. For those immune to the ESPN hype machine, this is The Last Dance, the long-awaited documentary about the final season of Michael Jordan's Bulls and their dynasty of the 1990s. Rare footage, unseen since it was filmed over two decades ago, has emerged as a mammoth 10-part series to be shown over five weeks on ESPN. The release date was moved up to fill the content hole created by the coronavirus, and ratings for parts 1 and 2 are through the roof, the highest ever for an ESPN doc. Grateful as I am for this film's existence, I have to say it is a very flawed product. So far it hasn't been worth the gargantuan hype that has accompanied it, and that's just a fact. 
and I want to explain why. Now, granted, I was not necessarily the target audience. I grew up a Knicks fan in the 1990s, and Michael Jordan's Bulls stomped on the chests of those Pat Riley, Patrick Ewing Knicks teams. At times, reliving the Bulls' supremacy felt like watching a frothy documentary about my last root canal. But for those born after 1990, I could see this being a useful education into the sheer physical and psychological dominance that Michael Jordan brought to the court every single night. It's also novel to see the 57-year-old Jordan interviewed about his life. Speaking about himself, particularly his childhood in Wilmington, North Carolina, does not come easily to him. It's moving to see him attempt to make sense of the racial and familial considerations that propelled him to seek refuge on fields of play. For being such a ubiquitous brand for almost four decades, Jordan is surprisingly reclusive. It makes for riveting, if not always elucidating, viewing. Yet as was seen infamously in Jordan's churlish, biting Hall of Fame speech over a decade ago, the real Jordan behind the smiling hype and poetical play is compelling, but also somewhat repellent. He was a bully as a teammate, and someone who wanted to rip out your soul as an opponent. That he treated those around him so poorly does not make Jordan unique among those deemed geniuses in their craft. Steve Jobs wasn't exactly warm and cuddly. But The Last Dance lionizes this behavior to an absurd degree. While exposing a new generation to Jordan's greatness, the filmmakers also project his bullying as critical to his success. Former presidents and Hall of Famers in tiresome fashion pay tribute to his intensity without a thought as to its toxicity. Jordan's insistence on being the alpha asshole deserves criticism, not praise. As soon as Jordan's playing skills eroded when he returned from retirement for two failed last seasons with the Washington Wizards, we saw the limits of this approach to building a championship team. If you are the greatest player ever, you can be a jerk or you can be Mother Teresa. You probably will find success. But when Air Jordan became Floor Jordan in Washington, it was far less charming as his harangues lost their power and teammates were beaten down with none of the attendant success. The other part of this documentary that is, perhaps unintentionally nauseating, is the vilification of the late Jerry Krause, the portly general manager of this championship team. Krause is made to carry all of the blame for breaking up this dynasty. He's portrayed as some kind of petty schemer who wanted to tear it all down just to show he could build a championship team without Jordan, Scottie Pippen, or coach Phil Jackson. The film crudely never mentions that Krause died in 2017, giving the impression that he decided not to cooperate with the project. No one is on hand to give his side of the story or provide a sympathetic view. Now, Krause was no saint and is by no means blameless. And I'm not exactly the kind of guy who sides with management here. But to see Jordan, Jackson, and Bulls owner Jerry Reinstorf repeatedly throw him under the bus is gross. It's especially noxious given that Jordan is now an NBA owner himself and putting all the blame on Krause gives his fellow quote-unquote team governor Reinsdorf a pass. If the recollections of Krause feel unfair, the old footage from 1997 shows Krause constantly belittled by Jordan to his face about his height, weight, and general appearance. Again, this is all presented not only without criticism, but with a message that this is part of what made Jordan great. There is clearly space for a critical documentary about Michael Jordan and his legacy. Only judging by the first two episodes, this ain't it. 
given that Jordan and the NBA reportedly had veto power over all the footage and that ESPN is a broadcast partner in this process, not a critical journalistic entity, no one should expect much to change with the episodes that lie ahead. And that's a wasted opportunity. And it's a damn shame. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award is all based around uh, the NFL draft this past week. Uh, And the Just Stand Up Award basically uh, goes to Joe Burrow, the number one overall pick who's used his platform uh, to talk about poverty in his hometown of Athens, Ohio. Uh, We're going to play right now a clip from his speech from the Heisman Trophy ceremony where he won the award after probably the greatest season for a quarterback in the history of college football. People should hear what he had to say. Coming from from southeast Ohio, it's, it's a very, very impoverished area, and the, the, the poverty rate is almost two times the, the national average, and there's so many people there that, that don't have a lot, and I'm up here for all those, all those kids in Athens and in Athens County that you know, go home to not a lot of food on the table, hungry after school, and you guys can be up here too. That's Joe Burrow right there speaking about the realities of poverty, where he's from. Cincinnati Bengals are lucky to have him. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down goes to Roger Goodell, uh, commissioner of the National Football League. And I want to quote a tweet from a guy named Chris Cerrone. And he says, I think better than I could, about why Roger Goodell's presence and uh, the way he presented uh, the NFL draft really did rub wrong. He said... I enjoy watching NFL football, but Goodell in the NFL honoring first responders and frontline workers speaks of hypocrisy. What if the billionaire owners paid their fair share of taxes? What if teams did not blackmail cash-strapped communities to pay for stadiums? That money could be used to properly fund public health systems and help with community safety nets instead of helping billionaires make more money at the expense of our communities. Hashtag boo the commish. Very well put. Can't put it any better. If people saw the NFL draft, you know that it was an absolute celebration, wall-to-wall, of the first responders, of medical workers. And while all that's welcome, there's something more than a little bit self-serving in Roger Goodell's promotion of these first responders when NFL owners themselves are the very people, the very class of people, not paying their share.
Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Dr. Jared Ball. Thank you for everybody listening. Hope everybody's healthy and safe and getting through. Hope everybody is wearing their protective masks whenever they're going outside. For, for all our listeners out there, just know we're thinking about you. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.